Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Hi, I'm Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. So whatever device you're listening to this on right now, there is a data center involved. This podcast is out there in cyberspace, which actually isn't an intangible space at all. Cyberspace is comprised of many, many data centers in warehouses with significant energy demand. In Europe, across five key geographies, the UK, Germany, Ireland, the Netherlands, and Norway, this demand could grow by 80% by the end of the decade. In this same period between now and 2030, wind and solar power are projected to approach 60% of total power generation. So what is a grid with a lot of renewable energy need? Well, flexibility to handle the times when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing so hard. The question we're exploring today is could data centers and all of the backup energy that they have become a distributed energy resource and help provide grid flexibility? Michael Kenefek and Sarah Raza from BNEF worked on a report titled Data Centers and Decarbonization, Unlocking Flexibility in Europe's Data Centers. This was done in partnership with Eaton and StatCraft. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and our full disclaimer is going to be at the end of the show. And now let's speak with Michael and Sarah about data centers and grid flexibility. I am joined today with Michael and Sarah to talk about data centers, but not in the way that you may think about them. I think oftentimes when we're thinking about data centers, we're actually thinking of the intense energy demand. Immediately, what comes to mind actually is Bitcoin mining, but that is a conversation maybe for another show. But we're here today to talk about data centers as a force and source of flexible energy demand. So Sarah and Michael, thank you very much for joining today. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Dana. So let's start at the very beginning with what specifically we're talking about. What is a data center? Paint a picture in my mind of what this looks like. So a data center is a physical facility that organizations would use to house their applications and data. Um, a data center's design is basically sort of based on a network of computing and storage resources that enable that delivery of the shared applications and data. And if you're interested, the kind of key components of a data center include routers, switches, firewalls, storage systems, servers, and all sorts of other computing resources. 
So, I mean, essentially everything that we interact with in the electronic world, the recording platform we're on right now, my Netflix and the Bitcoin that I don't own, all of those things are stored in a data center somewhere. Exactly. And the type of data center varies, right? So the main kind of two categories that we have and that we looked at in this report are co-location and hyperscale data centers. And you may have heard both of those. And in case you're not entirely sure what they are, so a co-location data center are those built for the purpose of renting space for servers and other computing hardware to clients. So, you know, you might get a company who says, right, we need one room housing X amount of servers for us. And then a next door to that, a different company, a hyperscale data center, often called a self-build. These data centers are basically owned and operated by cloud service providers like AWS, Microsoft, or Facebook or Apple. To put this in context, how energy intensive are these and how big is the scale of the energy demand here? So data centers are very large buildings that consume huge amounts of electrical power, not only for the servers themselves, that I guess like we said all your all our Bitcoin and podcasts live upon, but then also the supporting so the exporting service, like the cooling for the building as well, which is quite a significant demand. Because they can overheat, right? Because they're energy intensive, they get warm. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot, lots of really cool things looking at the efficiency of cooling for these buildings too. Really though, that's only part of it. So most of the demand, right? like if the cooling problem makes up about 30% of overall electrical demand in a data center, most of that computing power and that energy goes to doing the applications and hosting the data itself. So these are actually really sophisticated energy resources. They have their own on-site backup power generators. They've got their own batteries on site as well. So they're really interesting. Like actually can be not just connecting to the grid and causing more and more issues with supply or with congestion, but actually be more of this solution, you know, like how they can interact and be more responsive to what the grid needs. Okay, so we've established that they're definitely a source of energy demand, and we'll come to the flexibility in a second. But just before we get too deep into that, I think it matters for us to point out which countries and kind of which part of the world you guys specifically looked at, because this is a bit of a case study. It seems like everything is a bit unique here. So we've done a case study on some specific countries for some specific reasons, which will hopefully have applicability to other parts of the world. And maybe you could shed some light on that. What did we look at? Yeah. So Dana, you might be familiar with the flap D markets. Don't know if you've come across that. No, I have not come across that. So most data center capacity in Europe is concentrated in five countries, Germany, UK, France, Ireland, and the Netherlands. And that kind of capacity is almost in five of those cities. And that's referred to as flap D. So these markets are the largest for a bunch of reasons, like Frankfurt, London and Amsterdam obviously have the largest internet exchanges. Dublin is a data center hub specifically for, you know, the history of large technology companies headquartering in Ireland. But we actually decided to, yes, focus on the UK, Ireland, Germany and the Netherlands, which, as you guys just heard, you know, they're four of the largest markets. We also chose to focus on Norway, which is a very sort of emerging market, could potentially, you know, in the future accommodate a lot of green and flexible data centers. Does every country have their own market or do they sometimes buy this data center space from another country? When we talk about European data centers, a lot of that is really in these five countries. I mean, we we are seeing more sort of data centers cropping up in Italy and Croatia and places that traditionally weren't massive hubs for data centers. 
And I think also a lot of the newer places that are seeing a lot more build are due to, you know, more land being available, a milder climate, perhaps near more solar and wind resources. So what about the future of this space in terms of demand? Because I don't see myself deleting any of my children's baby pictures anytime soon. They're going to stay on that cloud server forever. Is this growing rapidly? Is this one of those kind of up and to the right or almost straight up energy demand stories? So in this report, our actual goal here in one of the, you know, one section of the report was to actually extrapolate and understand what demand would look like in 2030. So we kind of looked at current data center power demand in 2021, data center electricity demand, and, you know, project that out until 2030. And kind of some of our conclusions here were that this level of growth, you know, is not slowing. You know, that there is obviously uncertainty around how much data centers in Europe will grow. So for the 2030 forecast, we actually built three different scenarios. So we built a low, a medium and a high growth. And these scenarios assume sort of different compound annual growth rates, taking into account a lot of other things within the data centers to reflect those uncertainties regarding planning permission, constrained land options, available power connections. So it's definitely a difficult task in all of our scenarios. You know, data centers do grow across all five of those regions. Since I was kind of under slightly there, she did a huge amount of work of building from a database of how much capacity of data centers exist in these five countries. And we use that then actually to, while the amount of capacity in each market could be the same or, or less even, but actually the impact they have on the grid is really relevant to the size of the grid that they're connected to. And there's a big range there. So when I say like, like Ireland and the UK might have similar amounts of data center capacity connected, while in the UK data centers make up about two and a half percent of the amount of electricity the UK consumes. In Ireland, data centers today consume about 14 or 15% of all of Ireland's electrical generation. So it's a big gap between the impacts that the data centers can have on grids. Okay, so they have an impact. And I think we've set this up. Let's go to the flexible part of the demand. What is the opportunity here? Because I'm thinking, as we talk about flexible demand, we're not going to be able to take them offline. This is, there's a security of supply issue here. So what are the choices available to data centers to build that flexibility? I mean, this is kind of the crux of it. And I guess what we really wanted to dive into with the report is when you're looking at a data center, there's several sources of flexibility available. So you could have the load, so actually if that is the applications and the data that's going on, and you could shift that by time. So, you know, so if you've got something that doesn't have to happen at two o'clock in the day, and you can actually do it at 2 a.m. at night. Let's shift that to also if something can happen in Germany, but actually the German grid's really congested at the moment. How about we can shift that computational task to France, where actually there's a it's a far more relaxed grid. While there's the load you can shift, there's also, as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of electrical equipment on site. So you have the UPS, so that's the uninterruptible power supply. So this is a battery that pretty much every data center will have that if the grid goes down, which is a huge issue for data centers. As you said, data centers do not want to go down. They get paid to be online when we want to have our podcasts. And we all get very upset when our podcasts aren't there. I certainly do. Yeah. <laughs> so they have what they call a UPS, underfloor power supply, that will come on instantly. The power supply goes down and will run for about five, 10 minutes until the backup generators come online because it's like starting up your car. You have to turn the engine on. It takes a while for the engine to warm up. So UPS is a 
battery that can jump in. Every data center has a backup generator. The only problem is most of those are diesel. We don't want to use diesel for flexibility. Ideally, these backup generators will never be run. There are alternative options. You could use hydrogen. New options that if those were installed, maybe we can actually start to use that backup generation to do more flexible things with it. Well, so first of all, how much flexibility are you talking about? Minutes, hours, days? What's the duration of time that's being proposed here? It'll all be quite short. I think it does vary on those different aspects. So the load shifting, the UPS and the backup generation. The UPS will be very short. We're like, we're talking it's seconds to, to minutes. Also, DAS and are a bit wary of using their UPS to do these interesting things for the grid. Because it's a backup plan. Then you don't have a backup plan for the backup plan. Exactly. So there's a lot of hesitation and we can definitely talk about that in the future. But where those actually were, those UPS can work really well is to provide frequency response to the grid. This is a very big topic to get into, but you can think about frequency response as like it's the as frequency as the heartbeat of the grid. So the grid needs to needs to pulse at 50 hertz. So that's 50 times a second. And how the UPS could work is like a pacemaker that when that 50 hertz goes a little bit too high or a little bit too low, the UPS or the pacemaker kind of gives it a shock to keep the hertz, to keep the heartbeat going at that healthy point of 50 hertz. So that's kind of one of the main uses we saw. So let's say the backup generation was built into the system with the intention to use it. And you mentioned a number of solutions. Okay, so biofuels, one of them. I definitely am seeing this coming very much back into the lexicon after a decade of not being talked about quite as much. But then you mentioned two other things, batteries and hydrogen, which as of right now are very expensive sources of energy. Is there a point at which these become economically viable because the flexible demand is kicking in at a time when the grid really needs it, so the pricing signal is there? Or will it always be a commitment to, let's say, certain emissions profiles as opposed to, actually, I don't know. I mean, what's what's the, what's the incentive? So you're hitting on a great point of the incentives, and I definitely want to get to that. In terms of these two technologies, so like batteries and hydrogen, I think to to focus on those, there's only one data center in the world that we know of that is even at the trial stage of using a large battery as backup. Google has a data center in Belgium. So that's really interesting to see. They're already thinking about the next step. Microsoft is pretty keen on hydrogen. It's running a couple of projects at the moment. And Microsoft's actually set a goal to be diesel free by 2030. So there's an end goal there, and it's going to be interesting to actually what are the options they're going to, to use to try and hit that goal. Because as we we're saying, I can't number, but it's uh, the vast majority of backup generation is, I think that green incentive might be one of the best pushes we have to tapping into that data center flexibility. And you're seeing these, these two leaders of Google and Microsoft, you know, they're starting to talk about 24 seven renewable energy matching. You know, shifting your load is going to make that a whole lot easier if you can do that. And are they setting the benchmark? How corporations are going to think about the energy procurement? You know, they set that benchmark 10 years ago with PPAs. Are they setting that benchmark again today with this 24-7 renewable energy matching that other corporations will have to, to keep up with in years to come? Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Out of curiosity, the companies that are 
operating and running these data centers. I mean, you mentioned Microsoft and Google and companies that I know have net zero targets, in some cases, very ambitious ones, maybe even negative missions targets. But what about the rest of the industry? Is there a high number of companies with net zero targets in this? I don't, I don't have been gone too many years. It's unfair because obviously those those companies have been so public with it. You, I think Seth Sarah spoke through a number of these co-location providers as well, but this is where actually it gets pretty difficult between, let's say, the hyperscalers of those cloud operators we know well and these co-location companies, because on the one hand, the hyperscale operators they are very well resourced, you know, some of the wealthiest companies in the world. And the others had, you have these co-location operators who operate the majority of data centers we see, but they are not as well resourced. I think Equinix, one of the largest data center co-locator operators has a market cap of about 30 billion, as opposed to Google, I think, which is about 1.5 trillion. Amazon is up around the 2 trillion mark as well. So it's kind of an, it's difficult again to compare them. Also, the big companies have far more control over what they can do. Like they own all their own data centers. They decide what servers that go into them. They know the tasks that are going through them, what their users are using it for. Co-location operators don't have that visibility. You know, companies come in to build their servers in there. They have to serve their customers with what's called an SLA, a service level agreement, which can be quite restrictive to what these co-location companies can do. Yeah. And I think just to add to that, exactly what Michael said, it is a lot easier, I think, for hyperscalers compared to co-location. That's another reason why we looked at Norway as an emerging market because of a lot of its, you know, a lot of the integration of renewables in Norway. And there's a provider, I think Green Mountain. Green Mountain uses 100% renewable power because obviously one of the main challenges in the data center industry is ensuring continual cooling throughout the day. And one of the benefits of being somewhere like Norway is you know, you can, they can utilize some of the cold water from the deep Norwegian areas located adjacent to the facilities of the data centers, which again have so much land. So I think that we are seeing more and more co-location providers and operators, you know, prioritize net zero simultaneously with the hyperscalers. What's the policy environment for these data centers and are countries welcoming them in or are they something where they're saying, you know, literally my grid has so much demand, you're going to have to find somewhere else. So, I, I mean, I can just speak to sort of Ireland briefly. Obviously, growth in Ireland, you know, we, we, you would expect typically as someone who knows nothing about data centers, you know, out of those five regions, you'd immediately be like, oh, you know, we expect Ireland to be have the biggest growth just because we know that, you know, all the AWS and, all, you know, Google's data centers. But actually, it might not be as rapid as it has been in the last few years. And that's that's really due to Ireland's recent sort of policy proposals. And some of those include limiting new data center build unless certain flexibility requirements are met. You know, there are a lot of pushbacks from Irish citizens who are concerned about power and climate issues. And I think unlike somewhere like Germany, most data centers in Ireland are really concentrated in one major city, Dublin. And Dublin's electricity grid was not built to cater for such high demand from data centers, which I think has resulted in network supply constraints. Michael, I'm sure you can speak to this a little bit more, but you know, in June last year, the Commission for Regulation of Utilities, the CRU, proposed that the Irish network operators, Airgrid and ESB networks, um, which are kind of the largest, proposed that they prioritize data center connection requests outside of network constrained areas, which means there was a lot of uncertainty 
around, you know, estimating island growth, especially for the future of 30 or more proposed data centers in and around Dublin. Ireland is obviously very, is a, we could tell by my accent, is quite close to my heart. And Ireland is, data centers in Ireland consume 40% of the country's entire electricity consumption. Our estimates on 2030, which actually align with what AirGrid, the grid operator is looking at, is about 24, 25%. So like a quarter of all Irish electricity consumption will be data centers. That's a big number, <laughs> just to give scale. In Germany, which is the largest data center capacity with a much larger grid, that number is about 1.5%. So data centers actually, they are scaring the Irish grid operator and there's been quite drastic proposals that Sarah just mentioned, but that's slightly different to actually what we're seeing in other regions. So in Ireland, it's actually a concern of, of security of supply. The Irish grid will not be able to meet, you know, will not be able to meet all of the demand as well as meeting renewable energy targets, which is 80% renewable electricity by 2030. What we see in other regions, most notably Amsterdam, which introduced a ban for an entire year, they said you could not build any more new data centers. They have now lifted that, but said you can only build a certain amount by 2030, and they have to be in these particular regions. Frankfurt is talking through a bunch of proposals as well to like force data centers to build in particular areas. And I think that's maybe some of the lessons to learn for like emerging regions that are looking to attract data centers is to think a bit more about where these data centers are going to sit on the grid. But yeah, and it's actually the issues are not just purely the grid and the, the capacity of the grid locally to take it, but also the amount of land. You know, the data centers are bare, really big things and they take up a lot of land that could be used for, you know, warehouses or offices. Or renewable energy. Uh, exactly. And they, actually, it, one of the rules proposed in Frankfurt is that data centers can't be located near public transport hubs because they don't actually have many people. So they actually would rather push, you know, a warehouse that has a lot of staff, put that near the public transport hubs. And what does the hourly demand profile look for them? Is it constant or does it have a peak? Oh, it's flat. It's flat. So, th so <laughs> there you pancake. go. So it's pancake, but the rest of the grid is not. And, you know, I'm guessing many of the people listening, although not all, know that when people come home in the evening on a regular day, now that Many people are going back to work and going about their days a bit more than they maybe had been in the last two years. You see this very peak and trough throughout the day in terms of demand profile. So data centers, if they're able to take some of their demand offline, presumably in the evening when everybody gets home, they're sort of solving part of the demand that they take. They're at least solving part of the demand that they are adding to the grid. They're reducing the aggregate demand added to the grid if they're reducing that peak at certain points in the day. Because the alternative, I suppose, is just to build more energy. Even with the diesel generators, depending upon the grid you're on, is there a scenario where the diesel generators still lead us to a lower overall emissions environment? Okay, so yeah, talk about actually data center demand and what the profile looks like. So I think it was funny, we talk, everyone talks a lot about electric vehicles and the amount of demand they're going to bring to the grid. And it will, but actually data centers, depending on the region, will actually have more demand. So in Ireland, data centers will be four times the, in 2030, data centers will be four times the demand of electric vehicles in 
terawatt hours. In Netherlands, that seems to be twice the amount of electric vehicles used. And there's so much talk about smart tires for electric vehicles and shifting that load around and doing really interesting things. But does it, as though they are a larger source of demand, no one really talks about it. I guess it's harder for us to visit. You know, we know that a Tesla looks like. We see it on, on the road and we can see it plugged in and charging, but does it, almost, they're obscure. We don't see them and the electricity they use. So if we can shift that load around, that could have a huge Im- impact. The only problem is, is that, are you asking us to listen to our podcast at different times of the day? Because should, should we listen to our podcast at like 2, 2, 2 a.m. at night as opposed to 6 p.m. in the evening? Like it comes down to how we consume our digital goods. And actually, where are we willing to shift that? Or are there other ways that can be shifted? Which parties are most interested in watching this development and, you know, pilot projects come to fruition? Is it some combination of the grid operators, the data center providers, or the data center providers with net zero targets, or the countries and the policymakers themselves thinking about the overall grid impact for their country. So you have the grid operators, the data center operators, and I guess the governments as well. And this is actually where Ireland is, is the interesting case study that the grid operator is saying it's going to be really hard to, you know, to accept more of these data centers. Data center operators want to continue to build in Ireland. And then the government is in this tough position of, yes, we want this investment from these companies into the country. Yes, we want to hit our renewable energy targets. But then we have the grid operator saying, you can't have these two things. It's an unfortunate conflict. It's almost like now that the regulations that were proposed, that Sarah mentioned earlier, data center operators actually need to care about this now. Because let's, you know, let's be honest, data center's role is not to serve the grid. Their role is to serve us. It's to serve their users. Is to again to to wear out the to to wear it out. Is to make sure that our podcasts are there when we when we want to listen to them. So, but these new rules that are being introduced are making data center operators to have to respond. And if they want to avoid causing these kind of unfortunate situations we're seeing in Ireland and in Frankfurt and in. And in Amsterdam, which causes a lot of bad pu- public pushback, you know, you do see there is a letter, re- European MPs, MEPs are receiving petitions to ban new build of data centers. You know, it's not good press. And there, there's that move to be more engaged, to be more responsive and actually maybe take the lead and maybe get ahead of any regulation that might come in. It could be a much more proactive thing that data center operators can do. Where do you think we're going to see development in this space first? As we're watching it progress, what are the signs of life that you're looking for to see things really start to move forward? Recent growth has been driven by cloud computing demand. And I think an interesting kind of observation to look forward to the future would be, you know, how does that kind of split look between hyperscale and co-location? The report kind of states that, you know, the UK and Germany are really led strongly by co-location data centers. You know, I think Germany has pretty much in 2021 zero hyperscale data centers, but Google has actually made a commitment to build one in Frankfurt. So I think looking forward to see, you know, how that split will look and how those countries will change in that split between co-location and hyperscale and then how that increase in cloud computing will change that. I think also a lot of new build has actually been, and what we've seen from when we did this analysis, 
was actually site expansions rather than brand new sites. So Dublin, London, Amsterdam and Frankfurt, which are kind of the four main cities that we see within those kind of countries that we looked at, are kind of very mature data center markets. I think the large operators there have kind of shown little to no interest to buy brand new sites and in those locations actually have just focused on expanding current. So for example, NDG and Vantage's 70 megawatt data center in the UK recently announced plans to double this current capacity. Which we really want to encourage data centers to be more flexible. I mean, there's a lot of things that can happen within power markets themselves to improve the signals for flexibility, which it basically improves the economic case. Like the amount of money you can earn by being flexible because to be honest, if you can be flexible and earn loads of money out of it, I mean, companies are going to go for that. They're businesses. But also, as well as like kind of the economics, there's also the environmental side. So like if we can send those signals through to the companies and through to the end users, ultimately, that if you actually, if you act more flexible or if you behave more flexible in your data center use, we can reduce overall emissions on the grid. I think the most important thing and actually is going to drive all of this is we need to just more learning. Like it's really, it's really new. Uh, this is all quite new to everyone. There's a few ongoing at the moment and more on the way, but a lot of work to be done. We're probably five to 10 years before we start to see some really big movements in data centers operations in their grid responsiveness. Headed into this, I referenced at the beginning the fact that when I think of data centers, I actually think of currency mining, the electronic currencies. And I think, Michael, you had an anecdote that maybe at least one of the currencies out there is looking at this space closely as well. Sure. So yeah, actually only a couple of weeks ago, a Bitcoin mine in the U in the US actually agreed to ship this load. And it's actually interesting where Bitcoin actually might might work well for this is that it is somewhat free to ship its load. You know, like Google and Amazon kind of depends on how we as users are using their services. A, B a Bitcoin miner has complete control over how it uses its data center. So if it is willing and happy to shift that load to when wind is higher on the grid, to when solar is higher on the grid, to when actually, you know, helps the flow of electricity across the grid, then it could actually be a good resource and potentially more effective than some of these more traditional data centers that we've been talking about. So we will watch the space develop. It's definitely one of the newer and more tech spaces that we look at the future of energy demand and in this case, specifically data centers. Michael, Sarah, thank you very much for joining today. Thank you, Dana. A lot of fun. Thank you, Dana. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed.